Welcome to the Otherwise Podcast, Season 4. I'm your host, Casey Tigert, an author, pastor, and spiritual director. As I grew up in an evangelical church, evangelical tradition, I was constantly being reminded, as we talked about relationships in youth group, that you, you didn't want to be what they called unequally yoked. In other words, don't date people who aren't Christians. And beneath that is the idea of don't date people who aren't from the same Christian tribe as we are. Now, I don't doubt the people who said these things. I don't, I don't think they're bad people. I don't think they're evil. I think it's the story we were taught, they were taught to believe and the story they were handing down to us. And so we always thought as, as teenagers, well, what would happen if we married somebody from a, a, who didn't have the same faith as we did? But what we never considered was, what if we married someone who had the same faith as we did or dated someone who had the same faith? And then at some point, we went one way and they went the other. On this podcast, I'm consciously aware of the fact that those of you listening may be going through some sort of spiritual deconstruction. And the faith that you had is not the faith that you have now, and it may be a different faith even going forward. And, and maybe that's impacting you personally, but it might also be impacting your relationships. And that's why I thought this conversation would be so helpful. My guest today is a lady named Stina Kielsmeyer Cook. Stina has a new book out called Blessed Are the Nuns. And in this book, she details what happened when her husband whom was on the same page with her faith-wise when they got married, took a different track and left faith behind. And how they do life together, how they work together, how they parent together. And it gives us a picture of what it looks like to live with a faith that is constantly changing, constantly challenged, and constantly growing. And I think what you'll hear in Stina is a good direction forward for what do I do when my faith changes And what do I do when my spouse's faith changes? And so, here we go. Great conversation with Stina Kielsmeyer Cook. Stina, it's good to have you for a bunch of reasons, but definitely because I'm finally in the presence of someone who understands what it means to live in the Midwest (laughs) and all of the challenges that we we deal with and the hardships and, and things like that. So thank you for offering your time to be a part of the podcast today. I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me. I always begin with a question, and I, I'm, I'd am i love to hear what everybody says about this, but I, I think you have something unique to bring just because of the experience we're going to talk about. But before we get there, it, a question about wisdom. If, if you had to define that word, what would the starting point be for you? Where would you begin with the definition of wisdom? It's a great question. I think as I've been influenced by monastic traditions, um, specifically the rule of St. Benedict and also Salesian spirituality, which is a strain of Catholic monasticism uh, centered on the teachings of St. Francis de Sales. um, I, I think wisdom begins in a stance of humility and in recognizing that there's nothing new under the sun and we have great wisdom texts to turn to both in scripture and in the writings of early Christians. Um, and 
So it's not really a definition, but maybe an orientation of humility. And one thing that St. Benedict talks a lot about is being a beginner. Um, always we begin again, and that never ends. Um, every day, you know, we talk about mercies being new every morning, but you could also apply it to an, uh, interactions with people, um, to your vocation, to how you move about your day. And I think wisdom is always found in having an orientation of I'm beginning, I'm a beginner, I'm, I'm still learning, I'm still teachable. And you never really come to the end of that, no matter how many years you travel um, and that God is continuing to work in and through us and through the people in our communities and around us. So I think that that's where I would start with that definition. It's interesting that the idea of being a beginner, because I think it's a posture that we can elect to take, but also it's something that life can do to us. We can be reduced to novices and beginners again by experiences. And and it seems to me that the experience you recount in your book is one of those kind of moments where you were forced to start back at the beginning. Uh, so I... You know, I want people to buy your book and read it, but the the general thrust of this, I think, comes out in a quote from the very beginning of the book. You talked about your husband, Josh, and you talked about the expectations you had for the spiritual life in your marriage. And you say that you never expected that he would close off all access, fill in the well, walk away from the tradition of looking and seeking and praying and joining with the other tired sinners who are desperate for hope, that you never expected that. Talk about the story that gave birth to that quote, that gave birth to your book. How, how, did, how did this all begin? The book is um, a story about my, my own spiritual journey after my husband deconverted from Christianity. And we're different from other interfaith couples in that we didn't start our relationship or our marriage knowing that we were coming at faith from different places. But as, you know, our marriage developed and as we, you know, as the years went by, went on, um, my husband's orientation, his faith shifted and changed to the point where he no longer identified as Christian. And I grew up in a Protestant church, um, was really influenced by evangelical church, especially in high school and then attending Wheaton College, which is where my husband and I met. And I didn't really have a good framework for understanding what it meant to be married to someone who no longer shared my faith, especially because so much of the formation that I had around understanding marriage was that God needed to be at the center, that God should be the foundation. And when I no longer had that kind of understanding or that understanding wasn't reflecting my reality, I suddenly, it suddenly felt like the ground underneath me was unstable. I didn't know uh, then what that meant for the future of my marriage and for my own relationship with God in terms of how do I trust in a God that I thought was guiding me in a certain direction, guiding my husband in a certain direction. Um, so that's, that kind of uncertainty, that kind of, um, yeah, just feeling of being disoriented and feeling um, alone and uncertain was 
the reason that I started writing this book because um, I've often turned to books when I'm looking for answers and I didn't find a whole lot of stories out there that were describing the experience that I had. I found a lot of stories about people who were either intentionally choosing an interfaith marriage or if they were married or, or maybe it was the spouse that, that, you know, they were the one who converted to Christianity and then their husband was still, you know, not part of the church or it was a kind of a way of looking at this kind of dynamic in marriages. Um, now it's your job as the Christian to then bring your spouse, um, which is really different when you both have already started out in the same uh, church and environment. It's not like um, my husband didn't know what the gospel was or that he wasn't very acquainted with church life um, as a missionary kid. So I just found that really unsatisfying um, when I went looking for, for stories. And so as someone who has benefited from other spiritual memoirs or other stories about how people have encountered God in their lives, I thought this might be my way of kind of offering up a story um, in case there are other people who are experiencing the same kind of dynamic in hopes that it can provide a hopeful sort of framework of, of then what do you do if this is if this is your experience? And I think even if you're not in an interfaith marriage or this isn't the dynamic you have in your marriage, we all love people who have walked away from the church. I think that that's just more and more the experience of what it means to be a Christian today. And I think there can be a lot of lament and sorrow that comes from that experience. And I hope that my story can be one of, you know, just sharing in that um, experience and, and maybe giving some different perspectives on how God can still be good, how God can still be present um, in and through what can be a very difficult experience. You're right about, and of course you are, you're right about spiritual memoir, how, how even though it's someone else's life who their circumstances are vastly different, there are so many of these just common very human, which means very spiritual connection points that we often find. And I can, you're unflinchingly honest in the book about not only your perspective on Josh's deconversion, as you put it, but also on your own wrestling. I wonder, you both, the people should know that it's not as if you started out together with sort of a nominal approach to faith or like an inherited approach to faith. You were you and Josh were both fairly, and I say this in the best way possible, fairly radical in the way that you viewed your faith from wanting to participate in new monastic communities like Jonathan Wilson Hartgroves and um, Shane Claiborne's and, and have done work in third world countries. And talk about how there's this feeling, I think, in evangelical circles that that those kind of things act as preventatives against what has happened. Like if you do those things, it it builds in you the it takes out the possibility that you may walk away from your faith, that you've grown into a place where you're you're not ever going to walk away from it. Talk about how you how you perceive that now on the other side of your and Josh's transitions into different expressions of faith. Are you saying um, participating in more radical expression are viewed as a way of preventing um, 
I don't know, backsliding for what yeah. to use an evangelical word. Well, I always maybe I'll put it I'll put it in my terms. Growing up for me, growing up in an evangelical youth group, there was the sense that if you participate in our, the church activities and you do the Bible studies and you do your devotions and then maybe you go on missions trips, you're building your faith in a way that it becomes impenetrable. And so I, I can see almost in your your and Josh's story, you know, you went to the the Harvard of evangelical Bible colleges. You you went kind of in that really aggressive, in a good way, um, kind of faith path. And I always grew up feeling like, you know, being taught that that would make you immune to losing your faith. How do you see that now on the other side of the story that you tell in the book? I think that those experiences that you're referring to, especially in youth around, and, and especially in evangelical churches, at least the the ones that I know about, um, you know, there was that, yeah, sense of, of having a really a kind of emotional sort of connection to God and, you know, and then really seriously thinking, you know, what would Jesus do? How do I change and live my life in a way that reflects the gospels? Um, and I think in a lot of ways, um, there was a really, you know, it was a really heightened kind of intense sort of passionate way of engaging with faith. And I think that there's really beautiful things that come out of that kind of love for God and that kind of commitment and desire to serve um, whatever that might look like. I think too, what I've learned from Benedictine wisdom is that it's not sustainable long-term. Um, of course, it depends on how you apply it. And you look at, you know, communities like the new monastics or old school monastics who are living their lives in really radical ways. Um, they are showing <clears throat> a lifestyle that reflects Jesus's teachings that is really out of reach in a lot of ways, unless you're committed to a community like that and have that accountability. But baked into those structures, um, you know, there's time, there's moderation, right? Like that is one of the values of Benedictine spirituality. And I remember being so struck by that when I was first encountering the rule of St. Benedict and, and starting to hang out with nuns and seeing how their lives were really structured around times of both engagement and rest. And there was time for prayer and there was time for retreat and there was time for service and there was time for, um, you know, just being. And and I think that that was something that I didn't really see as clearly modeled for me in, in some of those other kind of more um, passionate radical circles or, or the conversations that at least that I was having at that time in my life. And I think that there is a wisdom there um, in orienting your life in a way that has a balance um, because if you're going to be committed for the long haul, if you're not going to flame out, <laughs> you need to have cycles that allow for rest and renewal. And I think that that was what was really missing in a lot of ways from that period of our lives was this idea that um, you can take it slowly, you can slowly build towards something. Um, it doesn't have to be all or nothing. Um, and that God can work through lots of different ways. How did you find out about Josh's deconversion? Yeah, well, we had both been kind of asking more questions about our faith um, post-college and, you know, having conversations about 
not just like how we wanted to live our lives as a couple, but you know, how we were growing in our understanding of, of just the core tenets of Christianity, especially when you're in a protected kind of religious environment like Wheaton or um, other religious institutions, if you're not encountering people regularly who think differently than you do, it it really can be unsettling to suddenly say, oh, well, ex- this person um, doesn't you know, believe the same things that I do and yet look at how they're living their lives or look at the work that they're doing. And so I think we were having some of those conversations already. Um, and Josh is a, you know, just someone who's really curious. Um, He's always been a reader and someone who really values learning. And so he just was doing a lot more reading of about different religious traditions, letting himself kind of explore in a way that maybe he hadn't before. And so, you know, we were having these conversations. I didn't really feel like one of us had like, you know, gone outside the circle of what it meant to be a Christian, just that we were having questions and entertaining doubts. Um, But it wasn't until... I heard him talking to his dad, um, who isn't was at that time was a missionary in South America and was back on furlough. And he told them that he wasn't a Christian anymore. And I think there was something about, first of all, Josh choosing to use that language. I'm not a Christian anymore. He had never said that to me, but also that it was beyond the circle of just the two of us having a dialogue around, you know, questions that we had or doubts that we had. And that made it real for the first time. You write about that moment in the book, and I imagine you've lived in that, relived that moment a few times. How did you sense God's presence with you as you heard him say, I'm not a Christian anymore? I mean, I don't know if I had a sense really in that moment um, beyond that I felt, you know, fear um, and was then when you feel fear, you, at least in my spiritual life, like that's a time when I'm often turning to pray or turning towards God and asking for, for God to be with me and, um, for understanding of what that, that this means and what, what is it that I'm supposed to do now? Um, so I think that, yeah, it's, in, in times of crisis or transition, you know, I think I know that God is with me. And yet sometimes that feeling isn't necessarily there alongside that knowledge. And I think that was probably one of those times where I didn't have a sense of peace. I didn't have a sense of everything was going to be okay. It was the starting point of a journey um, in which there would be glimpses and glimmers of God's presence. Um, but the uncertainty was was the hardest part of that, of just not knowing um, how it was all going to work out. I'm wondering too. You you obviously felt, and you write about this so clearly. You felt this sense of things being thrown up in the air, things being shifted. I imagine Josh felt an immense sense of freedom. Is that is that how he? You, is that what you saw in him after he? had made that statement to his dad and to you, or, or was it still something that he was laboring under or, or grieving? Yeah, I definitely saw freedom and kind of a release for him. I think he, his experience of Christianity had a lot more, um, 
kind of focus on, you know, I'm either doing the will of God or I'm not, you know, you're either like, and, and that I'm not a good person and I must continue to be striving to become better. And I think part of that is just maybe a natural bent of his personality. Part of it is the theology that he grew up with. Um, but whatever the case, um, yeah, stepping away from Christianity, I think there was just a lot more space um, intellectually. Um, and and I think just socially, just, just being able to open up your, your environment a little bit more um, to different possibilities and different ways of being and living in the world. You call, you call your life after that, um, you use the term spiritual singleness to define, to describe, not define, but to describe what your life was like. What is spiritual singleness and, and how did you, how did you cultivate that, that term for yourself? Um, I was, I, I connect my faith a lot to the natural world and, um, someone who grew up going to Bible camp and going on wilderness trips with Honey Rock Camp, which is affiliated with Wheaton. Um, and so it was on a walk that I was having in the woods, which is often how I pray is I'm talking to God while I'm walking, that that phrase kind of appeared in my brain. And in the book, I I wonder, you know, is this from God? Is this something that I just sort of, you know, surfaced from my subconsciousness? But I think it's important to name things, to name experiences that you have, because it can give you a, a way of you know, externally looking at it and saying, okay, that's, that's what this feeling is, or that's what I'm wrestling with. And so spiritual singleness was important to me because yeah, it gave a language to what it felt like to be still married, still committed to still be a parent and still be in my family life. And yet feeling this profound disconnect now along issues around, you know, attending church or, you know, participating in spiritual disciplines or practices as a family um, so it was something I really latched on to, and it was around the same time that I had that experience of hearing this term in my brain from God, um, that I was starting to hang out with monastic people with, um, with nuns. And I was really intrigued by that connection of women who had intentionally chosen to live this celibate lifestyle in community with other women who are living out their lives and their faith in just really what I, you know, still deem a very radical way. It's really counter what our society and culture tells us um, is, you know, the, the ideal life, right? To be single, to be living in community, to, to devote your life to poverty um, and obedience. Those are really radical things. And so I was wondering around spiritual singleness, if there might be some kind of connection between that term and why I was attracted to these women, because maybe they were reflecting part of what I was experiencing in my own life of being devoted to God in a way that didn't require a marriage partner to be with you along the journey. And I think, especially in the Protestant church, we don't have a whole lot of great single leaders that we lift up, like all of our celebrities, for lack of a better word, are married. Um, and marriage is really something that is at the center of a lot of, of church life and theology. And, and yet that hasn't been true of Christians across, you know, the centuries or necessarily what the Bible, um, you know, really says about, about singleness. And so I think too, I was just was looking for those role models of, well, what does this look like? How, how then can I live uh, my faith if 
I'm now suddenly in an unexpected interfaith marriage. bring up the this idea of the traditional Christian family and I think for those of us who grew up in churches that that's a pretty clear picture uh, but I it's interesting too because it seems indistinguishable in some ways from the picture of the typical American family you know that this many kids in this kind of house in this school district and and it what what stands out to me is while Josh was leaving a form of faith, you were also leaving a form of faith, in a sense, not not necessarily as stark as deconversion, but a but a move, a spiritual journey, a, a transition between stages. Did it feel like that when you when you bumped into Benedictine spirituality and the nuns? Which, by the way, when I heard the title of your book, the title of the book's "Blessed Are the Nuns." For those of you who are listening. Um, I heard the title of the book on another podcast. I thought, oh, I get it. She's talking about Benedictine, so it's N-U-N-S. And then I went and looked up the title. No, it's N-O-N-E-S from the statistics about people who claim that they have no you know, faith at all. And so kudos to the marketing on that one because it got me, got me thinking. But did you feel like that? Did you feel like you were making a transition into a very almost a different kind of faith when you started to engage with some of this monastic material and, and some of these some of these people who had such an impact on you? Yeah, I think I I really didn't know a whole lot about Catholics. And I still feel like I'm very much a beginner um, when it comes to Catholic theology. I think there was um, not necessarily a suspicion, but there was definitely a sense of, okay, this is the right, you know, this kind of faith, evangelical faith and community that I'm part of, this is kind of the way. And these people might be okay, they might still be Christian, but it's not, you know, it's not as good as what we have here. And so I think I carried, you know, some of those stereotypes um, around you know, just different theologies or ways of of approaching Bible and uh, approaching tradition. And so, yeah, when I first started um, talking to Catholic sisters, I realized, wow, we really do look at faith differently, even though we still, you know, worship the same God and have the same Bible and practice the same, many of the same spiritual practices. Um, So it did feel like I was encountering something really new and different. And yet, I think it was a really helpful new lens through which to view scripture and through which to view God, especially because, um, you know, I felt so much on the fringes of, of church life. And um, like, I didn't really know where I fit or I belonged and no, was no longer connecting, I guess, to the same theology that I had, you know, maybe ascribed to when I was in college. And so I think, as I was trying to hold on to my faith, you know, cause it would have been a lot easier if I had just said, okay, you know, Josh is, Josh is done. I'm not so sure about this. I'm just going to join him, And, you know, we're going to just explore together outside of uh, the Christian tradition. Um, and yet I knew the centrality of the gospel story and person of Jesus and all of those things were still true. And, and yet I was struggling with some of the other stuff um, that kind of came from the tradition that I, had known more closely. So 
it was really fascinating to start reading about things like saints, you know, and, and looking at, um, you know, some of these really early saints and, you know, the martyrs and just all of this culture and tradition that I just felt really unfamiliar. Um, so I think for that, I got into those kinds of turn here. Um, and I, and I'm still a Protestant. I'm not Catholic. I haven't, haven't converted. I would say I'm very Catholic attracted and jealous of some of the, the different traditions and, and ways of approaching scripture and approaching, um, you know, different figures, like even like Mary and having a feminine sort of way of looking at, um, you know, a, a model, a, a model that was never really shown to me in, my, in the Protestant churches that I grew up in. Um, so yeah, I do feel like it really, I really have shifted a, a, a long way. And yet, um, I still belong to a Protestant church. I attended an American Baptist church with my kids and feel comfortable in a lot of different um, places. And I also work for an ecumenical center, which maybe is also something important to note that part of my work is um, engaging with Christians from all sorts of different backgrounds. So that also has helped, like strengthening that skill of, of relating to people um, has also really influenced my faith and just broadened my, my perspective. It makes me think of something that uh, Ken Wilber said. He's a writer and and uh, has written a lot on things called spiral dynamics. And I don't know if you're familiar with any of that, but he yeah. talks about moving from sometimes moving to the latter stages of our development are all about we transcend and include. And mm. in the early stages, it feels like it's us versus them. And then in the later stages, it's it's all us. So you mm-hmm. can see the value in a Mennonite church because you're part of that. You can see the value in Benedictine Catholicism and Salesian Catholicism. You can see the benefit of the American Baptist tradition. And instead of saying, I have to pick a lane, uh, it's you bring all of those together as and seeing all of them as belonging at the table. When I run mm-hmm. into people who are in in that later stage, the people who inspire me, who you know are are mature and wise, I see in them such a such a hospitality for the different mm-hmm. traditions. Um, it's really powerful. So, yeah, I would say that I I experience that same kind of hospitality as well within the Catholic sisters who I encountered. There was just this lack of judgment and a lack of fear too, um, around encountering someone who was outside of their specific tradition. And I think that that was also part of the attraction was, can I find a spiritual spirituality that allows me to not have a fearful response to my husband's deconversion? And if so, what does that look like? So yeah, I resonate with what you're saying there. Yeah, and that fear is such an animating force. It, it does cause us to take steps that often are unwise or outside of our own control. The, you bring that up, and, and one of my f- favorite little side stories in the book is when you end up at a dinner, you and Josh, and he's sitting beside a, a, a beautiful uh, sister, Teresa. Sister Teresa. Yep. Mm-hmm. Talk a bit about that, his conversation with her and his feedback to you afterwards. I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, so this was a, a work event that Josh and I were attending together, which was held at the Abbey, St. John's Abbey, which is one of the largest Benedictine monastic communities in North America. 
and um, we were seated at a table during this kind of sort of dinner function and um, we're unbeknownst to us we're seated next to a, a catholic sister a benedictine nun and she had recently she told us she had recently celebrated her 60th year wow. um, i think it's called a diamond jubilee of her commitment to being a catholic sister and had joined the the community when she was 18. Um, so just wow to, to sit in the presence of someone who's made that commitment and has really sustained that for the long haul was pretty remarkable and so josh was sitting right next to her and i was on the other side of josh and it was kind of loud in the room so you know what i we weren't able to, you know, as a group of three, have a conversation. So I ended up turning to the person on my other side to talk and was just kind of, you know, a glance over every once in a while. And just Josh and Sister Teresa were just having this great conversation and just seemed to really be really tracking with each other. And he was laughing. And I afterwards, I was like, wow, you guys really you guys really hit it off. I'm, I'm surprised. And I was like, did you tell her, you know, that you're a missionary kid and just, you know, a little bit about your story? And he was like, yeah, she you know, she asked me about about that. And at that time, my husband was also teaching. So, you know, they had some common, you know, vocational background stuff to talk about as well. But, you know, he he said that she had told him, you know, oh, I'm a spiritual director and you know, everyone is on a journey with God and, and just kind of left it at that. And just, there was just this real sense of um, her trust, I guess, that God was um, journeying with people, even, even people like Josh, who have said, I'm no longer, I no longer believe this anymore. Um, and, and also, you know, Josh saying, you know, she's just a person, you know, just, just realizing like we can relate to each other, you know, in and through our common humanity. Um, and at the end of the day, you know, I, I believe, you know, we're all created in God's image that, you know, that's, that's a central part of Christian theology that I hold close to it. Even if you don't ascribe to that, I think you can still have that sort of um, orientation towards other people of saying, regardless of what it is that you believe, you're another human being. And for that reason alone, I'm going to engage with you respectfully and lovingly and, and in a sense, with a sense of trust that, you know, yes, I want you to know about the love of Jesus. Yes, I want you to know about the gospel. Yes, I believe that Christianity is a beautiful, um, you know, faith that I want people around me to share with me. You know, it's not that I don't have that same desire. And yet, you know, coercion and, you know, proselytizing, these kinds of things, you know, they just rarely go well. And especially for someone like Josh, who um, has been in Christian schools almost his entire life, um, you know, there just has to be a different way that we can come together and, and relate to one another, despite our differences that that shows that respect. And I think it speaks volumes about someone's faith uh, as well, if they're able to do that authentically. Yeah. I'm sure there was a point. Well, I'm not sure. That's why I'm asking. I wonder if there was a point where you thought, do I, do I stay? And clearly you chose to stay. What was the animating force behind how you responded to that question? Not what made you stay, but what, what was the thing that came to mind as you, if you, if you asked that question that kept you in, in this relationship, continuing to invest 
Yeah, I think, you know, every couple, every marriage is unique, right? So um, if someone's listening to this and is, you know, wondering this question, I just want to first say, you know, counseling is um, recommended and Josh and I have gone to a lot of counseling, both individually and as a couple, and that um, really you have to be someone who's willing to kind of own your own part in the relationship, whatever that looks like, and to know what, you know, your non-negotiables might be. And that's different for every person. So I don't want to be prescriptive in how someone might be hearing me uh, respond to this question, because I do know people who... um, have separated, have divorced, and that was really the best option for them in their relationship. I think in our case, um, both of us had to meet each other in the middle. We had to um, continue to have the utmost respect for each other and to to continue to support each other, to continue to put each other, um, you know, to consider each other's needs, and yet also do the hard work of examining our own wants and needs. And yeah, is this, am I able to get those needs met elsewhere? In my case, um, feeling that spiritual singleness, part of how I knew I needed, why I needed to be in relationship with the Catholic sisters, why I needed to um, continue bringing my kids to church was that I needed to develop my own spirituality apart from Josh. And that was my way of kind of, um, staking that claim, I guess, for myself. And if Josh wasn't able to respect that, for example, or if we couldn't come to a common um, understanding around how we wanted to raise our kids, I think it could have, you know, things could maybe could have turned out differently, but um, he respects that I'm a Christian. He he understands what it is um, since he's been one before. And I, in turn, respect that he no longer is a Christian and I'm not gonna try to convert him. And I think that that mutual respect, letting your love extend beyond religious conditions is something that um, is a place we had to arrive to. But I'm not going to say it, it happened right away. I think that there's a lot of grieving on my part that I had to work through, which is why the counseling part was so important. And also, um, you know, it's not a linear thing. So there's still times where things will kind of pop up and much less so now than at the beginning. But where I'll grieve kind of what I had imagined, um, you know, our family life or marriage to look like. And I think on the other side of some of, you know, having kind of gone through a process, I'm, again, we're still, it's, things still come up. It's not that like it's easy or like now we're, we have this perfect relationship because we've figured it out. Um, but I think that, you know, we have kind of negotiated some of those things and Um, now we have this beautiful opportunity of creating something new together. You know, it's no longer a given that we're both Christians. We're both going to do these kinds of, you know, attend church together, do these practices. So instead we have to be really good about communicating and talking about, well, how do we want to approach this season and how do we want to live out our values and how are we going to make these decisions? And to some degree, I think that that's true of any marriage, even if you do share a faith and, Um, The more that I talk to people who are married, the more that I realize, you know, even if you're both Christians, there's times where there's disconnect. There's times when there's, you're not quite in the same place spiritually, or things are just looking different than the way that you had hoped. So I think, um, yeah, I I don't know if that answers the question, but, but I will say that a lot of it was just stubbornness too, um, just there was times when I didn't feel like it was going to work, you know, or I wasn't sure. Um, but 
I guess we can call it grace, you know, that, that we were able to make it to this point. So I have to, I have to observe that a book is a, a book is a really public thing. How has that gone? How did the conversation go around? Hey, Josh, I'm going to write a story about our, our marriage and share it with, a, you know, hopefully hundreds of thousands of people. Uh, what was that like? What was the, the conversation like around the book and telling that story? I mean, again, um, I think the way that we've been able to make our relationship work has been that mutual support. And so as I started writing, um, you know, writing for me has always been a way of form of thinking, form of understanding what I'm even feeling or thinking. Um, and not all of that writing is for the public, right? Like there's things that we both mutually chose to keep private. Um, Josh has always read everything that I've written before it's been published. And I think, um, yeah, it just shows his generosity, you know, of spirit that, cause it, it's hard for him, you know, it's that, that passage that you read at the beginning is one of those that I think is still hard for him to hear that, you know, that feeling of that he was the one who filled in his well and walked away from it. You know, I think that he knows that his deconversion was painful for me and that it hurt me. And so to have a book that's a testament to the fact that you hurt your wife by walking away from your faith, it's not an easy thing just to then, you know, post about it on social media, support me. Like, um, but you know, he's always said, well, if it can help someone else who's, who's going through this, like it's worth it. And, and in some ways it's been cool to see too, how other you know, relatives who maybe are more conservative, you know, by me kind of being out there with it, you know, they understand a little bit better where we're at. And um, it's, you know, allowed certain family members to have different conversations with us or to kind of come to a different way of understanding and, and accepting where we're at. And I think that that's been kind of a unexpected sort of beautiful, beautiful thing. It's, we're not hiding anything, you know, it's sort of out there. And it is scary. And I think too, having um, a book released during a pandemic, you know, it's not like I've had to be like out in public having conversations with people. I mean, there'll be times where I'll read a review or a comment and I'm just like, wow, I can't believe, you know, it just doesn't always feel really real, I guess. Um, but that's just because, yeah, being an author right now is is a strange thing. But um, yeah, I I just... It just shows the kind of person that he is. As I was reading, I, I just kept thinking and grieving over the kind of comments that you have probably heard. And I, yeah, it seems like anyone who wants to write something that's honest and, and kind, but also transparent and authentic tends to take a, a whole lot of bullets. And uh, I, I would imagine that's happened for you and, and probably for Josh a bit too uh, in, in the meantime. If there, yeah, thankfully there hasn't been too many, <laughs> at least not publicly to me. I'm sure people have had their conversations behind well, that, doors. Yeah, but, so let's let let's yeah. pray that they keep them there behind the closed doors, scrawled <laughs> on a napkin, texted to a friend, whatever it might be. If there's a if there's a particular gift that you believe this book can give to people, what what is it? What did you what did you hope would come through when people read this? Even if they're not in a situation of spiritual singleness, what do you hope people uh, 
come away with after they read your book? Yeah, I think um, that sense of of God's goodness um, is really at the core of the spiritual journey that I write about in the story um, and that God can still be good in the lives of people who believe differently than we do. Um, coming to that place of trust, that's my hope is that people, I think that that overwhelming fear that I felt at first, you know, it's not that there aren't moments where I still have that feeling come up, um, especially as it relates to raising our kids and, and making some of those decisions. But I don't feel that fear for, for Josh in the way that I did once. And I see that as a real grace and a real gift. And I want other people who dearly love the nuns or the agnostics, uh, the people who, you know, in a lot of ways, Josh was really brave in making the choice that he did because it's cost him, you know, and, um, and yet coming to a place where you can still love, still love that person and still trust that um, God's still working, God's still moving, even if it's in ways that I didn't expect. Um, so I'm hoping that that, that message um, provides some comfort to, to people out there who, who, yeah, maybe are having this dynamic in their marriage or with a friend or with kids. I mean, I hear a lot from parents whose children, again, like you were saying, were raised in the church, had all the information, had all of the spiritual formation opportunities in the world, and yet made a different decision as they got older. Um, it's a really painful experience uh, for, for parents. So how do they trust God with their kids still? Um, yeah. Well, thank you for your honesty and your transparency. Thanks for writing something that was so beautiful. And, it, you know, adding to the voices of spiritual memoir, I, I, f I feel like that's such a valuable thing and such a powerful thing. So thank you for being willing to do that. And, and thanks to Josh, too, for his partnership <laughs> with you in that. Um, I, I do believe people will, people will learn, if nothing else, the value of how going through times like this can bring you to a new understanding of your, of your spiritual life. And um, that's my prayer. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for your thoughtful questions and for having me on the show. It's, it's really wonderful to, again, having done a pandemic book launch to, to have real conversations <laughs> with real people about, about this thing that apparently people are reading. Um, yeah. So I appreciate that. Thank you. As you sit here reflecting on what you just heard, I wonder if there's a challenge somewhere in what Stina had to say, in the way that she's approaching her faith journey and the changes she's experiencing, the way that her husband is approaching his as well, and how they parent and how they navigate through life. I wonder if you found a place of connection for you. And specifically, what kind of invitation do you hear? in a story like this, where things don't go as we expected. And we, we are once again reminded that we're evolving spiritual beings. We're constantly changing, and that means all sorts of things. 
What's the invitation you feel Spirit presenting you with today? And what is, what is one big step you can take to begin to embrace that invitation? Stina Kielsmeyer Cook is the author of the recent book, Blessed Are the Nuns, Mixed Faith Marriage, and My Search for Spiritual community. You can find that in the show notes. Uh, She's a writer from the cold north uh, where she raises kids, maxes out her library card, and is usually late for church. She's a former housing advocate for refugees. She loves to talk about public policy and parenting in her neighborhood in Minneapolis. She works as director of communications at the Collegeville Institute, where she is also the managing editor of Bearings Online. She has a graduate diploma in forced migration and refugee studies from the American University in Cairo and a BA in political science from Wheaton College. You can find all kinds of information about her in the show notes and find her website and be able to find her book as well. Thank you so much for listening. If you're listening on my website, thank you, uh, Spotify, iTunes, uh, if you're a new Amazon listener, that's a new thing that's happened this season. So thank you wherever you're listening. Please rate and review the podcast. Uh, Let me know how we can make this better. And may you have an opportunity in the coming days to see your faith for what it is, a beautiful, moving, shifting, growing, challenging, haunting thing. And may you know that spirit is always present, calling you forward, giving you more than you could ask or imagine. Until next time, be well, live wisely, peace friends.